Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, August 12th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the latest film and TV news. This Slash Film editor-in-chief, Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film weekend editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Y Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. Okay, let's start off with uh, a bit of news that I'm sure comes to some disappointment to our own HT. What is going on with Avatar The Last Airbender? They were going to make a live-action TV series for Netflix. What is the update? Uh, The latest update is a real bummer for Avatar The Last Airbender fans. Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konietzko, who created the original acclaimed Nickelodeon animated series, have parted ways with Netflix over the creative direction of the live-action remake series. Uh, DiMartino announced this in a post on his website titled An Open Letter to Avatar The Last Airbender Fans, saying that they couldn't control the creative direction of the series and thus decided to just uh, exit the project altogether. And uh, he, he had some pretty... Not, I wouldn't say harsh, but like not. It was pretty veiled in ter- in terms of it was kind of thinly veiled, um, in, in like not unhappiness with the Netflix production. Um, so he said at one point, um, it, the Netflix uh, project, which is still ongoing, has the potential to be good. But what I can be certain about is that whatever version ends up on screen, it will not be what Brian and I had envisioned or intended to make. So this is a massive bummer for Avatar The Last Airbender fans um, because uh, Martino and Konietzko's involvement in the first place was kind of the reason that um, there was somewhat cautious excitement for this because uh, these the creators, uh, they would be showrunners and executive producers for the new Netflix series, and they promised, um, or assured rather, that they would be make a deliberate um, choice to uh, cast as um, a people of color and um, as like sort of ethnically accurate to the depictions in the original animated series. And uh, the it, the memory of the last live action attempt at Avatar: <laughs> Last Airbender is still strong in fans' minds, and we don't want a repeat of that. So now that Konietzko and DiMartino are gone, there is a lot of fear that the the Shyamalan disaster will be repeated. 
Yeah. It, it, we shouldn't insinuate that this disagreement is probably over like the 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 races of casting or anything like this. Right. This could be like story or character that like we don't even know what the disagreements are over. This is a little surprising to me though, because my conversations with filmmakers on and off the record has been that like Netflix is pretty hands off with mm-hmm. stuff. So I'm I'm actually very surprised that there's this big um conflict here uh, i'm curious as a as a fan of avatar the last airbender now that the creators are no longer no longer involved in this would you still be excited to watch a live action series not at all <laughs> um my cautious excitement from before uh has now turned to a sort of dread <laughs> which not to say that there can't this you know the situation can't uh, come out for the better. I'm sure that there are some great uh, writers and creatives out there who could, who have a, an affection for Avatar: The Last Airbender, who could, you know, steer this in the right direction. But it just feels like DiMartino and Konietzko are such a major part of Avatar: The Last Airbender and its success, and why it's such a great, perfect animated show that uh, they're not being involved and in stepping away in a, in this situation where it seems that they, you know, clash with the Netflix executives in some way. We can't really know what for sure over what. Um, it just doesn't um, bode well for the production at large. Yeah. Um, let's talk about another creator who has signed on with a big streaming service. Let's talk about Martin Scorsese. He has struck a deal with Apple for a first look deal for movies and TV shows. Brad, tell us about it. Yes, thankfully, it's not Quibi. It is Apple. Uh, Martin Scorsese <laughs> um, has struck a first look deal uh, over at the streaming service that will give Apple uh, a first glance at any movies or TV shows that Martin Scorsese uh, may want to direct, produce, or executive produce. Do, do you think that this is just going to be like He's making some TV shows that he, he's like on as a producer and like maybe some documentary series that like not all of us care about. Or do you think it's going to be more stuff like The Irishman where he's going to actually get get at the helm? It's going to be big narrative feature films. I'm, I'm hoping it'll be a mix. Um, Scorsese is one of those directors who attaches his names to a, uh, a variety of things like Steven Spielberg does. Scorsese has executive produced a lot of TV shows where he's directed the pilot, but then leaves the show to its own devices and still has his name attached to it as an executive producer. Um, in addition to his narrative features, we know he's directed a lot of documentaries, especially about the Rolling Stones um, and, you know, other musicians. But we're hoping that since uh, his next movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, has been picked up by Apple and they'll be fully financing it, that maybe this is a sign that Apple's willing to throw their weight behind him and give him uh, the money he needs to make the movies he wants without having much interference. Because the biggest problem Scorsese has had recently is that his movies are these big, you know, expensive dramas that aren't exactly a big box office draw, and studios don't want to take the risk on it just for the awards accolades. Um, which, if Paramount would have taken a risk on The Irishman, it wouldn't have paid off for them in that way since it didn't come away with anything big from the Oscars. But, you know, these are prestige pictures and they're hard to get off the ground for studios when they just want that big box office return from blockbuster movies like Marvel and Star Wars projects. So hopefully Apple has enough money to throw around and they'll be willing to more easily and readily fund his projects so he doesn't have to struggle to make movies. Because it's just sad that we're living in a world where Martin Scorsese, (laughs) one of the most legendary filmmakers, is having trouble making movies. (laughs) Yeah. Now, uh, I mean, even Steven Spielberg has trouble making movies. Yeah. But it, it, it is also funny that Apple TV on the surface 
should be a thing that we all love. First of all, they are filmmaker first. They're they're all about just like signing great filmmakers to deals. And they've signed all of them, right? Like all, all the great filmmakers. And so far, their original content, like, you know, I, I think out of everybody on the on on Slash Film, I've watched a lot of their original content. And I would say their original content for a streaming service is the consistency of it is higher than any other streaming service. That's not hard because, you know, Netflix, you know, is across the, uh, you know, across the field with everything. But like, you know, the morning show is really good. For All Mankind is great. I've heard Servants good. Little America is amazing. Central Park is really good. I I haven't uh, seen Servant, but I've heard good things about that. And I've heard good things about uh, Mythic Quest. Like they, they have a lot of great stuff. But that said, you know, say, you know them having all these filmmakers in their pocket, making them content, them having like a good track record of like the stuff that they're making is actually pretty damn good. Nobody is watching it. Nobody knows it exists. So like, I guess Brad, is this, is Scorsese enough to get you to actually watch Apple TV plus? Yeah. I mean, if, if there is a movie that Scorsese is directing, that goes to Apple TV plus like killers of the flower moon, even though that's getting a theatrical release as well, I will undoubtedly watch it there. Um, you know, when it comes to TV shows, it's a, kind of a wait and see thing, you know, um, Scorsese was involved with that series, uh, vinyl, which I thought looks good and I was interested in, but I actually never went out of my way to watch it. So it, I think it just depends on what Scorsese's involvement is, how good the show looks and that kind of thing. But having somebody like Scorsese on board, I think, you know, does bode well for the kind of talent that Apple's bringing in. And this also comes just after they struck a first look deal with Leonardo DiCaprio's Appian Way production company. So uh, him and Scorsese have worked together plenty of times before. He's starring in Killers of the Flower Moon. So maybe we'll get, you know, a resurgence of that period when they were making a lot of movies together. Yeah. Uh, Disney Plus is also a streaming service that's making a lot of plays for original content. Uh, They've just announced they're making a remake of Three Men and a Baby. Ben, tell us about it. Yes, so uh, we actually knew that this remake was in development back in 2018, but we hadn't heard anything since. And I I was wondering if maybe this is one that they sort of announced, but then it it fell to the side. But evidently, they're still uh, cranking away at this thing because now Zac Efron has been hired as one of the lead actors in this Disney Plus remake of Three Men and a Baby, which uh, came out in uh, 1987 originally. It was actually directed by Leonard Nimoy. That's like a big... um, you know, piece of trivia that film fans love to throw around just because it's so strange on the surface that the guy who played Mr. Spock on Star Trek would direct this uh, sort of goofy comedy, um, which itself was a remake of a French film. Uh, Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson starred in the original movie as like these New York City bachelors who end up getting an infant delivered to their uh, to their door one day. And basically they they sort of like fall in love with this little girl and, and have to, this, you know, this... this child and have to take care of it and they learn lessons about their bachelor ways and there's this convoluted drug smuggling plot that goes on (laughs) all throughout the whole thing it's really um i saw it a long long time ago so i I really don't remember you know my reaction to it as a child or or the specifics of the the movie but um yeah it's just sort of weird that nimoy would would direct this i saw some people on twitter speculating or or maybe just jokingly suggesting that uh, zachary quinto should direct this one <laughs> was, was pretty great um but uh yeah i mean zach efron uh, obviously he broke out uh, under disney's um 
uh, high school musical movies. And he's gone on to do some interesting stuff over the past few years. I, there was a period probably 10 years ago where he was trying to shed that, um, you know, that Disney channel friendly, uh, uh, reputation. And he started, um, just really dipping his toe into the world of comedy. And I surprisingly was enjoying a lot of the stuff that he was making at that time and thought like, Oh wow, this isn't just, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, moppet haired little Disney kid. This is like a person who actually, I, I think I, who, who actually could be like a really, like a legitimately talented actor instead of just, um, you know, a, a lot of times those Disney channel performers are like kids who are like trained from birth to like play to the back row. And um, I, I thought that might be the case with Zac Efron, but it seemed like he was sort of maturing into a more interesting actor than I originally gave him credit for. Uh, that said, I'm not sure if... Wait, 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 Ben, are you saying Three Men and a Baby is not an interesting choice for Zac Efron's future? <laughs> I, get, I mean, it, really, the first thing that I thought of here, the first, I guess the uh, the comparison point would be like that period where The Rock was not a massive star, but he started making Disney movies like, um, what was it? The Game Plan and Tooth Fairy and stuff like that. <laughs> it just sort of is like, oh, you're just like doing one of these now. And it's it's not necessarily a project that I'm like excited about on a creative level, but I guess Zac Efron needs to make that money. So sure. And and Disney plus needs to like build up its, its catalog because that's one of the things we've talked about, you know, yeah, Peter, you're just talking about Apple TV plus and one of the big, uh, the big disses against Disney plus is like, it, it doesn't really have big high profile things that um, attract new subscribers throughout the year. It has the Mandalorian. It, it will have the Marvel shows one day. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it has the library. It doesn't have the original content. Right. So this, I mean, even though it's it's a remake, so it's not original, but you know, uh, there's a new thing coming to it. So maybe depending on who else they cast. Um, maybe well, well, that's the question. How do you modernize Three Men and a Baby? Like, how do you, what is the take that makes like, oh, this is worth making in 2020? Or 2021 or whatever. I hope they, I, I, weirdly, and this is a very bizarre take for me, but I really hope they lean more into the drug smuggling stuff. It seems like something that Disney Plus will not do. But I, <laughs> I think that, um, you know, because the, the thing about the original movie um, or the 87 version is that like the idea of these three bachelors taking care of a child was depicted as like some sort of radical act for the time. Um, and you know, that's just such a, um, and only a woman could take care of it. Right. Baby. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> that mentality, um, was in the mainstream at that time. And like, we've moved past that, I think as a society. And so it seems like a little regressive if they were to, well, very regressive, if they were just to revert back to that same take for this. So in lieu of doing that, I would rather see, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not sure who, I think, uh, you know, the, the casting and whoever ends up directing this is going to inform a lot of, um, of my feelings about this thing, because if you get a really fascinating filmmaker behind the camera here, even though it is a direct Disney plus movie, um, you know, th- there could be some room for some interesting stuff, but, uh, I don't know it, right now it's a little too early for me to make that call. I think. Yeah, I, I I don't know what the take is here. What what is the thing that makes this interesting? I guess like one of them could, could be a gay man. Like that could be interesting. Like a gay man that isn't used to you know doesn't have a child, doesn't know how to take care of a child. I don't know. I I really I really have no idea. I really like I'm I'm trying to like rack my brain 
of like what would be the interesting like someone must have been in a room and pitched something because i don't think like there's enough love for this movie franchise there's like a you know oh we need to see the remake of three men and a baby but yeah there was a sequel called three men and a little lady in uh in 1990 and then actually like 10 years ago um selick gutenberg and danson were talking about coming back for another three men and a baby movie that would have been called three men and a bride that i think would have been about the, the little girl growing up and getting married but uh evidently the script for that was like close to done at that time like 2010 or so but that sequel never happened so i think you're right peter i think somebody has come in with like a fresh approach and i don't know if they're gonna like get those guys to to come back and cameo or anything like that but um and i wonder if anybody out there is actually like a big enough fan of three men and a baby to be like super excited about this because (laughs) it's weird because that movie was the number one movie of its year, which is insane. Like, Was it 19, really? Yes, 1987. This movie made more money than anything else. Like, It outgrossed Beverly Hills Cop 2, which was a massive sequel at that time, and Fatal Attraction, which was like this huge adult movie that uh, got tons and tons of press in that era. So the fact that this <laughs> was the highest grossing movie of that year means that like it definitely has name recognition, but will the younger generation care? Uh-huh. What is the new take going to be? Yeah. I think these are questions that uh, I'm interested in. You know, I'm kind of like you, I remember watching it. I think I watched it multiple times, but I don't remember if I really in- liked it or, or not, or maybe it was like the only thing running on TV at the time. I, what I do remember is I remember when I was in like middle school, everybody was talking about, there's like this ghost ghost kid in the background and this was in the day of vhs tapes and stuff like that so the only way you could see this is rewind the tape and kind of like pause it and slow-mo it and stuff like that but uh as you know better copies of this have come out uh people have just realized that it's actually just a standee of ted danson's character which is actually shown in the movie at one point but they just put the standee like behind the curtain and people thought it was a ghost yeah yeah so anyways uh maybe that's the take peter it's about a ghost this time (laughs) yeah okay we have more things to talk about let's talk about seth mcfarlane he is switching gears and he's going to develop an epic drama hd tell us about it yeah seth mcfarlane is not going to be just a comedy guy anymore he is developing his first fully dramatic project the winds of war it's described as an epic period drama set in world war ii uh, at the set in World War II, uh, a story that uh, follows an American family's turbulent voyage across the continents and across the years that span the Second World War. He is developing it alongside the Alienist co-executive producer, Seth Fisher. Um, it's it's his first project under his New Deal um, under uh, with NBC Universal. And um, it is uh, being called the next phase of his career, the start of. So, um, yeah, it seems like Seth MacFarlane is starting to step outside of the uh, family guy and the Orville Orville bubble. Although (laughs) the Orville also was, I remember... um, uh, When it was reviewed, uh, it was surprisingly dramatic, more than people thought it would be. So this may just be the next step after he played with some drama in the Orville. Seth MacFarlane to to me seems like one of those guys that's gotten so much success in his realm of comedy that he like thinks he can <laughs> replicate that in other areas. And he's like, looks at that as the, you know, he, what challenge does he have now in comedy? Like make more comedies. So I don't know. 
I guess the the question here is, can Seth MacFarlane make a good, serious movie? What do you I think? I mean, the Orville received mixed reviews when it came out, and I don't know if his any other um, attempts at drama have been successful. Um, yeah, I, I've never been that much a fan of his brand of comedy anyway, so I can't say I'm super excited about this. It's interesting, I guess I would say, to see like what he could do with it, but I'm not sure what to expect. Um, is, is anyone else here on the podcast like more of a fan of Seth MacFarlane's work and interested to see what he could do with drama? Yeah, I love Seth MacFarlane. I, actually, I'm one of the few people who uh, unabashedly loves A Million Ways to Die in the West. I think it's really funny. Um, I'm not sure why everyone hated it so much. I, I think maybe it's because Seth MacFarlane kind of has this natural presence about him that feels kind of smarmy but I, I i just i don't get that vibe from him as a real person i i think he's very intelligent very self-aware um and you know i i i liked that he was willing to put himself out there and do something like cosmos which is a fascinating uh you know series about space and, and physics and uh and whatnot and so i think having hearing having him do something like this is really fascinating and i, I would really love to see what he can do with uh, something completely different than anything he's done before See, I just hope that he doesn't star in it because, like, you are right. He does have, like, this smarmy – I don't know. There's some kind of vibe to him that I just don't dig. Like, I don't hate his comedy, but I don't want to see him in it. Right. For now, yeah. he's only set to write and executive produce the series. So we don't know as far as now whether he will be starring in it. Okay. Let's uh let's talk about Comic-Con. We just went through San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con has announced that they're going entirely virtual and they're doing things a little bit differently Ben, what do we know? Yes. So uh, obviously the pandemic has necessitated that New York Comic Con, which takes place uh, from October 8th to the 11th of this year, is going to be entirely virtual this year. Um, the physical event, which normally takes place at the, uh, is it the Javits Center, HD? Did you, have you covered this event in person? Did you cover it last year? Uh, yes, I covered it last year. It's the Javits Center, but also several other um, like buildings and uh that were held like throughout like the this one block or several blocks i can't remember yeah, exactly surrounding how many, structures yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. i remember just walking around in the rain a lot <laughs> uh so yeah the physical event um is, is not going to be held at all and instead they've partnered up with youtube to make um the this like exclusive streaming home of, of this year's uh, pop culture convention so um Peter, you mentioned Comic-Con at home, and, and we talked a lot about that as sort of like a, a debriefing of how we thought that went. And I think all of us had a, uh, I would say, bad to miserable experience with <laughs> with Comic-Con at home this year <laughs> because of the way that that whole thing was handled. And, you know, one of our big complaints was it, it really felt sort of stagnant and lifeless and just like a shadow of the real event because of the pre-recording of all the panels. And it sort of took away that like that vibe that anything could happen and that that sort of excitement that. Uh, permeates those huge rooms like Hall H and Ball, Ballroom 20, um, you know, when when the physical convention is taking place. And then also we were sort of like baffled as to why um, that event removed the comments of all of the YouTube, you know, videos, the, the panel discussions and stuff like that. So it seemed like the community aspect of San Diego Comic-Con was sort of like cut off at the knees um, this year for Comic-Con at home. But New York Comic-Con looks like it's going to do things a little bit differently. They are going to actually do like uh, live streams of some of the panels. It's unclear exactly how many or, or which ones. It says that um, panels that are going to be streaming live and on demand on YouTube. So I'm not sure if that means 
every single one will be streamed live or what. Um, but fans are actually going to be able to participate in talent Q and A's during panels. Um, every panel is going to have the ability to be like turned into a watch party where they're, they're going to have live chat features and stuff like that installed uh, for this event. And then also uh, the event organizer says it will give fans the opportunity for experiences that will get them up close and personal with meet and greets, live Q and A's, uh, personalized autographs, videos, and professional workshops. Oh. I, I, have, I have no idea how any of that is actually going to work in a non- you know, in a virtual space. <laughs> How do you do a meet and greet? I guess I, like you could do like, it's like a zoom kind of. Right. I, I, that's my guess. Uh, those details have not been laid out yet, but I think just generally speaking, it seems like New York comic con is, uh, you know, they, they, um, watched and, and saw from afar what happened with comic con at home. And I think they're, it seems like they're, they're doing their best to try to, um, rectify some of those mistakes and, uh, and make a slightly better, uh, convention experience for people and try to replicate it as best they can, you know, in, in a virtual setting. Do, do you think the this interactivity will make New York Comic Con feel more lifelike than Comic Con? Um, I think it will feel more lifelike. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think I saw somebody respond to our tweet about the story, like basically like snarkily saying that the reason Comic-Con at home sucked was because the lineup was not great. Um, and that part has yet to be like fully announced for New York Comic-Con. So yeah, I mean, in a, in a certain, uh, from a certain perspective, um, if you don't have the stuff that people really care about, then it's going to be tough to create that, um, that community vibe uh even with you know even in uh, chat windows and stuff like that but um but yeah i think that, you know if the lineup is is decent uh i think it will be a better experience than comic-con at home was for sure okay let's move on to tron 3 this is something we talked about uh earlier we 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 know that jared leto is going to be starring in this and this is happening at disney and now we might have have we might have a title that was kind of accidentally leaked it should tell us about it yes following the announcement of the tron sequel starring jared leto and directed by garth davis jared leto confirmed his casting in a tweet that has since been deleted that referred to the sequel as tron aries so the, he since deleted the tweet and just um put up a generic sort of boilerplate message saying he's grateful for the opportunity etc cetera, etc cetera. but tron aries is um possibly the title for Tron 3, this untitled Tron sequel, uh, which does uh, bring into question what it could be about. Yeah, what what does Ares tell us about the sequel? Well, Ares probably refers to the god of war in Greek mythology. And so I'm guessing it has to do with maybe a program that has warlike attributes. Maybe this is something along uh, the lines of war games uh where um um, you have to i don't know battle a computer to stop the destruction of the world so maybe something like that i don't how do you guys have any theories i don't Hmm. that sounds like a really good one to me um i haven't really given it much thought because i'm sort of like still doubtful that this is actually going to happen but um i guess they're they're on their way they've got jared leto they've got a director now so I don't know, Peter. Do you think this movie is actually going to happen? Like, the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I didn't, but you know, they're they're making they have a Tron ride in what Shanghai, I think it is. Yeah, Shanghai, and they're building it in Florida right now. It's like in construction. I feel like they're 
there's so much of a presence of of that like property in the parks that they're gonna want to do more with it. I, will will this be the Tron three that we get? I don't know, but I I do think that we will eventually get another Tron movie. Mm. It's just a matter of uh, is is this the time and is it with Jared Leto? <laughs> the only time I've enjoyed Tron is in the Kingdom Hearts games where you get to play in the Tron world and you do get to play to uh, race in on a light cycle. It's very hard, by the way. One of the most difficult levels. <laughs> In Kingdom Hearts 2, just FYI. Wait, so, so you didn't enjoy the the Daft Punk score from Tron? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was probably the only um, other that, than that in uh, Michael Sheen's David Bowie impression. So the, vi- the, visuals, the visuals in that movie are great, too. Yeah. Yeah. That, too. I don't know. I, li- I like Tron Legacy. I don't think it's a, you know, I will agree with you guys that it's not a, a huge success, but the, it... it there's some stuff about it. There, there's some high highs in that movie, like the visual design, the music. Uh, th- there's some really interesting, cool stuff in there, and I would like to see you know them explore it more with a better, or yeah, with, with another director. Maybe not this director, maybe not this star, but who knows? We'll, we'll see what, what what comes of this. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Tenant. Uh, this movie is supposed to hit theaters in some places. What like? Later this month is that is that the case? Later in August? No, it, September second is when it's supposed to. Arrive. September second. Okay. It, it is hitting. It is hitting internationally later this month, but not in the United States. Yeah, that's what I meant. Some theaters internationally oh, later okay. this month. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, so uh, we've learned a little bit more about the visual effects of this movie. Brad, tell us about it. So yeah, Christopher Nolan uh, did an interview with ICG Magazine in support of Tenet. Um, I'm sure they've been sitting on it for a little bit since the, the movie's been kind of in limbo for a while. But now that it's finally coming out, they're getting some of the publicity out there about the making of the movie. Uh, and Christopher Nolan happened to mention uh, that even though this is, is a big blockbuster, compared to most large-scale studio movies uh, of the sci-fi nature, uh, this has significantly fewer visual effects shots. In fact, he even says that their visual effects shot count is probably lower than most romantic comedies which is kind of insane. Christopher Nolan hates technology, Brad. Don't you know that? <laughs> it's, uh, Christopher Nolan definitely doesn't hate technology, but what he, what he does love to do is uh, have as many practical effects as possible <laughs> without having to rely on digital effects. And so uh, um, Tenet's editor, Jennifer Lane, says there's roughly 300 visual effects shots. And for a com- point of comparison, uh, the Transformers franchise has anywhere between 600 to 1,000 VFX shots, depending on which movie you're watching. The record for the most visual effect shots is Avengers Age of Ultron with over 3,000 visual effect shots. Um, but the best comparison is probably Inception, which has around 500 visual effect shots, which is still a pretty good chunk amount more than what Tenet has. Hmm. There was also another part of this that where the editor was talking about how this would be one of the most uh, challenging movies to edit or something? So, yeah, it wasn't actually Jennifer Lame that said this. It was Nolan that said that he had okay. had joked with her when she first came on that it might be the hardest movie any editor has ever had to cut. And he said that she might actually agree with that now that she's worked on it because um, apparently it, it she the challenge has to deal with the idea that Tenet has to portray time running in different directions. <laughs> what does that mean, Brad? What does it mean that time is running in different directions. I think the simplest explanation is, is probably what we have seen in trailers so far, where our characters are in the middle of a space where time is moving backwards around them and they have to move along with it. 
we're not necessarily sure why or how they can affect it when it's in that kind of environment. But I imagine having the actors in a scene that is essentially running backwards, it was probably pretty difficult to pull off. But are there two realities or is it just one narrative flow, but it keeps on going back and forth? I'll let you know after I see Tenet probably next year. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then. Uh, Our final story for today is Netflix is going to release a trilogy of Fear Street movies next summer. Ben, tell us about it. Yeah, this is really interesting. So um, Fear Street, for those who don't know, is uh, R.L. Stein, the author behind Goosebumps, also wrote this this huge series of Fear Street novels, which is basically like a, a more violent and gory version of Goosebumps. Goosebumps were sort of like, um, you know, kid-centric or, or aimed at kids. And uh, Fear Street were, these books were like, aged up a little bit. They were more like teen-centric sort of horror novels. And uh, this movie version of um, Fear Street has been in the works for a while. And actually, uh, the idea of a trilogy has been in the works for a while. Um, Originally, I think it was uh, 20th Century Fox that was um, going to make this movie and and distribute the whole thing theatrically. Um, But uh, now a new report says that uh, Disney, which now owns Fox and therefore owns this this Fear Street trilogy, uh, Disney has sold the rights to this trilogy to Netflix. And Netflix next year is going to release uh, all three movies, one per month in an event that they're going to be branding as the summer of fear. So uh, Lee Janayak, I think is how you pronounce her name, uh, is the director. She directed all three of these movies. Um, it's weird because Alex Ross Perry, the guy behind like her smell and listen up Philip was at one point talking about directing there were reports that were indicating that he was going to direct the second movie and Janaik was just going to direct the first and third, but in, ends up that I don't think that ended up happening. I think she <laughs> directed yeah. all three of these movies. So that's kind of cool. Um, but uh, yeah, like I said, this has been sort of in the works for, for five years and, and it was going to be like this theatrical thing where each movie that, that sort of release strategy was just going to be done on a theatrical level instead of, uh, for Netflix. And I think, Brad, I remember reading one of your articles about this from, you know, a, a couple of years ago where you were like, huh, that's kind of cool that like, th- you know, uh, a big company like Fox is going to be releasing these movies, you know, one per month because it kind of resembles the Netflix binge model a little bit. And now that's actually what's going to be happening. Like the, it's going right back to Netflix. Um, these movies are supposed to be quote unquote, much scarier than standard Disney stuff. So that's, interesting and uh i I don't know if these books are if these movies are going to be based on any you know one particular uh novel or or series of novels within the fear street saga but um they are interconnected movies and uh it begins in 1994 and it actually goes all the way back over to like the 1600s so it's going to be you know this this huge interconnected Mm -hmm. trilogy and um yeah I'm, i'm very curious to see how this turns out I'm really curious if any other studios will, you know, be inspired by this to do something like this in the future. Like I could totally see like a Marvel movie where you get like the first part of the, you know, like part one of a thing, like at the beginning of summer. And then you get the epic conclusion of that part two at the the end of summer. But what does doing that like does that take some of the like anticipation out? I guess I don't know. Um I, I think it 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 ramps it up more because there's so much that we're watching and consuming and and um, you know we're in this era of like peak TV and and just like a a glut of entertainment that I think the idea of condensing 
a thing over the course of one summer, but but still releasing new um, entries within that uh, larger sphere is is kind of a smart thing. And I, I'm curious to see, yeah, like you said, if, if other companies are going, you know, the, the bummer is that I think if Fox actually did this um, theatrically, like they were originally planning to, obviously the pandemic uh, came in and sort of wiped out their plans to be able to do this. And it was just easier for Disney to sell it to Netflix. So Netflix could do, do it this way. But I, I think if a bigger studio like Fox, uh, a more traditional studio had done this, then there would have been a lot more um, potential for other studios to, to sort of like raise their eyebrows and look at it and be like, Oh, this could be something that we could do. But now that it's going to be a Netflix thing, I think, the traditional studios are just going to sort of like ignore it or, or just be like, Oh yeah, it's that's Netflix. That's what Netflix does. Um, when in actuality, it actually was supposed to be, you know, <laughs> uh, a big, uh, like uh, legacy studio that was trying something new with this. So yeah, uh, on that, on that level, it's sort of a bummer, I think, because it may have had a bigger impact coming from Fox, but, um, yeah, I but, think that's, but, that's but it's also interesting that Netflix is doing this because Netflix could theoretically just put all three movies up at the same time and it'd be like, you know, you going that weekend and you get to see all three in a row like you do when you binge watch a TV series. But they're kind of taking a more serialized release approach with this, which is kind of interesting. I'm wondering why they didn't choose to have these movies go to Hulu instead where they have a majority stake and is you know kind of a place for more adult content yeah i wonder if they've just i'm not sure exactly how like what the the process is of like selling something to one of your own subsidiaries or like offloading something or like if they could just make more money from netflix buying the rights and and just they could sort of like wash their hands of yeah. it and be like this is maybe it was like too scary and and they were just like okay we you know, we don't want to like recut this and like Disneyfy it. Um, and and even with their Hulu stuff, I you know I, I don't think they've had um, under the Disney reign. I can't think of anything that's been like too extreme that that's been put on Hulu. So yeah. um, I'm not sure if this movie is going to be that. But I was just trying to think of like other movies that may have that, that have done something like this similarly. And and the only thing I can think of is like the Matrix trilogy, like the second and third. Uh, entries in those movies didn't they come yeah, out they came, like pretty... they came six months apart? So... Yeah, six months. So yeah. um, that that's maybe the closest thing that I can think of off the top of my head that that uh, you know where like a traditional like legacy studio has done something like this. So um, yeah, I, I wonder if it will have ripple effects. Back to Future two and three came out, but that was probably a year apart, right? I think. I think so. I think that's right. Yeah. Um... Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I think uh, to answer your earlier question, I think that it probably has to do with money. I think that, that Disney probably invested a lot of money in these uh, or Fox <laughs> invested a lot of money in these these movies. And Disney's just uh, ready to cash out and doesn't think that they would get as many in uh, subscriptions for Hulu. Mm -hmm. Like it's not enough for to be a loss later for Hulu. Yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing that's what it is. Not that they like, you know, saw the movies and were like, this is crap. We're, we'll right. sell it to Netflix or something like that. It, it, it all has to do with money. Uh, okay. Anyways, that does it for today's episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find the links to the stories we mentioned on today's podcast linked in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and rate and read this podcast and I uh, rate, <laughs> rate and review this podcast on iTunes. 
Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you on Friday.